0: Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. If you are a return listener, I'd be grateful for your rating or review. And if you dig this episode, give us a like or share. And now, whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place. My guest this episode is a highly sought after expert in mental performance coaching. His clients are proven winners, Olympic gold medalists, Cirque du Soleil artists, Super Bowl and X Games champions, NHL superstars, surgeons, pop stars, and corporate leaders. He is also a best selling author. I highly recommend his books, Train Your Brain Like an Olympian and The Other Team Chemistry. Those and all the other books are linked up here. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Jean Francis Menard.
1: How are you doing today i'm doing great thanks for having me tyler
0: how are you doing i'm good excited to have you on the podcast i know we are just chatting here you're involved you know with the two olympics in about half a year it's been a busy one for you but uh to get us started and share with some of our guests uh we'd love to just hear kind of how you got into mental performance sports psychology and the work that you do
1: Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, I'm based in in Montreal, Canada. So um, great city. If you've never been, I highly recommend you come visit Montreal. Uh, Vibrant, uh, great sports city. So um, actually, originally, I wanted to become a gym teacher, uh, to to tell you the truth. So I did my undergrad in kinesiology. And um, in my third year of my undergrad, I did a three-week practicum in a high school. And uh, I'm a patient guy, Tyler, but um, for some reason I expected the kids to be like I was and my friends in high school. We were a good group of kids and the kids that I I taught were, they were awful. They were not (laughs) listening to me. It was so tough. So anyways, all that to say that it got me thinking. I was like, wow, do I really want to do this? And ironically, I would say arguably the best uh, sports psychology master's program, maybe in the world, was at the University of Ottawa. Um, about two hours from Montreal here our, our national capital in Canada. Um, so at the same university where I was doing my undergrad and uh, you know, the, the ones who know sports psychology, like Terry Orlick, who is, who was a legend and unfortunately passed away a few years ago, uh, Penny Wertner and, and other great sports psychs were, were teaching in that program. So uh, I was taught by some of the best. Um, yeah. I knew it then it was a great program, but I know it now that I've been out of the program for 15 years and, and in a uh, living doing this. Right. So, um, so that's, that's my academic, academic background. I started my PhD after my master's, but I only did about a year and a half. Uh, cause I applied for a job at, um, Cirque du Soleil, the, the circus yeah. company. And, yeah. uh, I was 25 at the time, green, no experience. So I, I didn't think I was going to get the job. And, um, I did, I, to, uh, cool. to my surprise, I did. And, uh, that's, that's where I started my career as a mental performance coach. So. Uh, what was that like? Because I've been to uh, the, Be- <laughs> the, the
0: Beatles Cirque du Soleil show, loved it. Yeah. I've seen one or two other ones that, I mean, I just kind of like watch those shows just with your jaw dropped. And I know you've, I've seen some, you know, rehearsals and stuff in the background and they, they rep, they rep, but what's it like kind of training that, that kind of performance and athleticism?
1: Totally. Well, uh, first of all, I, I got to work with Artists that came from all over the world. So I got mm-hmm. to work with artists that came from over 40 different nationalities. I was wow. working with, with trampolinists, with jugglers, with fire spitters, with clowns. Uh, so the variety was unbelievable. And I and, and most of the time I was working through an interpreter, because most of them didn't understand English. So so that was that was a big change for me because you rely on a, on a third person to make sure that. The information you're you're sharing is is translated correctly but you don't know right and so so that dynamic was quite unique um <clears throat> what was um what was really unique about Cirque is the amount of performances they do per year you know some of these Vegas shows they, they do the same show 475 times a year <sighs> wow like like think about that for a second so right. there, there we could just have a podcast and talk about about consistency like you know they these there are these things that they do that allows them to to be just as great on show number 50 175 and 425 during the year so um in terms of rest and recovery and making sure that they remain sharp uh, towards their act but um it it was awesome i mean i spent five great years there and i was quite young in my career and i got to do so much volume like i Mm. in one week i could conduct Ten workshops and do about fifteen or twenty coaching sessions, and so it was a great. I like to say that I finished my PhD, but a practical one, not not a theoretical yeah.
0: Gotcha. one. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds so, like a, a fascinating experience. And you know, one of your books, we've got uh, your books linked up here to the podcast, but uh, it's called the "Latest One Team Chemistry." So, you know, got people from all over the globe, all different skills, creating this performance what elements of team chemistry are present there that you also see in athletics that are so vital to success? Right. Right.
1: So first of all, the, the reason, um, my author and I, uh, Andre uh, called it team chemistry is because of the famous slogan we use in the, especially in the world of sport, when a team gels and they work well, we say, you know, there's chemistry within the team and actually in French, because my first language is French, we use the same expression, uh, which is a translation of team chemistry. And ironically, um, Andre and I, the courses we liked the least in, uh, in high school were the chemistry classes. We <laughs> couldn't, we couldn't stand those classes. Same, same. Okay. But Tyler, I bet you like Andre and I, you do remember the periodic table of elements, you know, that famous table with all the elements. And there's 129, I think separated in, in different sections. And when you combine different elements, you get molecules. So Andre and I always wanted to, uh, to write a book together. He's a famous baseball coach. Uh, An amazing university professor who coach, uh, who teaches coaches, education classes, uh, communication classes. Um, And uh, we were toying around with like how to structure a book. And so what we decided to do is we actually created a new period, periodic table of elements, but with leadership and coaching elements. Yeah. um, And and divided into different sections. Uh, So there's a section called creation. So creating your, Creating your DNA, creating a positive culture, um, creating your, your vision as a team. The second section is called communication. So how to give feedback, you know, how to communicate with people, how to connect with them. And, there, and I'll, I'll explain the sections Then I'll give a few uh, a few examples. Sure. The third section is called uh, collaboration. So, you know, it, it's easy to say to work as a unit, but man, it's not that simple. It really isn't. Um, and so we give a bunch of examples and and tangible strategies you can use to make that happen. And the last section is called coordination. So how do you coordinate your people, your, your projects? So, so it actually makes sense. So a few examples, we wanted to write a book, Tyler, that kind of stood out. Like there are so many books out there on leadership that says like, oh, the seven habits of a great leader, you know, just follow that. And you'll be a great leader, which there's some truth to that. But Andre and I don't believe in recipes. We really don't because every team is different. Every coach is different. And so the way we wrote the book is it's written in what we call a modular way. So you don't need to read one chapter to to understand the next. You can just, you can hop from one chapter to another. Cool. And we wrote some stuff like we have a chapter called the hatchet, which we talk about every single coach at some point has to cut players to make his team. And there's a respectful, professional way to do that. And so we, and we give really specific examples. Like, you know, how many coaches still today, Tyler, they just, they put a list on the wall who made the team. They put up on the wall and say, you know, go, go look at the list. And if you didn't make it, well, sorry, you know, better luck next year. Well, that is such a shameful moment for the athletes that didn't make the team. And then you have some of your buddies that didn't make the team and they high five each other. And so, so just examples like that where, you know, we give examples of um, maybe set up a room where you talk to every individual and there's one way to get into the room and there's another way to get out. So when you do get out, nobody sees you. Um, Mm -hmm. So all these little things that sometimes you don't really think about, but in the end it makes a huge difference. Another chapter is a a concept that I created that um, I call five one. One of the biggest mistakes that coaches and leaders make in sport is they give advice too fast Mm, for a bunch of reasons. Some of them, because they think it's their job to give an answer right away because I'm the boss, Uh, or some of them will give an answer right away because they might feel vulnerable and they don't want to get into that, you know, that debate or discussion. So they just want to kind of cut it off. So the five one concept is before you give one piece of advice, ask five questions. More or less, it could be four, it could be six, it could be seven. But it's this concept of go get information, go get additional information, not always to get um, information that you don't know, but oftentimes your questions will confirm what you knew already. So, and by asking these questions, all of a sudden the feedback you're gonna give will not be the same than if you didn't ask those questions. Definitely. And so, so, so our chapters are very much like that. It's, it's, it's concepts that are easy to remember, easy to use. Um, and we're super happy because it just came out a few weeks ago and we've had a lot of great feedback through social media and, uh, from friends and family. And so, yeah, we're proud of, uh, of what what actually came out of it. I I love the ask questions. I think the
0: best football coach I had in college, whenever I made a mistake, (laughs) the first thing out of his mouth was usually, do you know what you did wrong? And that put him on how to coach me. You know, if I go, yes, yes, I know. Give me another rep cool. Get less stress for coach. But if I said, no, I don't. And I made a mistake. Then he's like, I got to reteach. Yeah. Totally. So he was just a very teacher oriented where he did ask. And I think even the other simple question with kids is, can I show you something that might help? Just ask permission. Just that that'll simply help your advice be more absorbed.
1: <laughs> well, and what, and what I'll add to that, Tyler is one of the things that coaches underestimate the most is that usually athletes know more than we think. Athletes know more than we think. And we don't take advantage of that. And especially as these athletes grow older and older, nobody knows an athlete's needs more than the athlete. We're in our own body or in our own mind. And the best coaches, like you mentioned, your football coach, they assess, they they probe. They, they get the info and knowing that that's going to be valuable for the advice they're going to give afterwards. Um, you know, there's another chapter. I have to share this because yeah. I know that people love this concept. And I and, and we're talking, you know, this podcast is for, you know, coaches and, and kids and sport and stuff. So um, so we have a chapter called Lego. Love it. And and so I have young kids. I, I have kids that are nine and seven. Um, and you know most kids or many kids uh have played with legos at some point in their life and <clears throat> i you know the way i tell the story in the chapter is about a parent and a kid but in the end it's it's totally relatable to to a coach and an athlete so when your child plays with legos let's say your child is 4 years old and they're in their room for about 30 minutes and they build this huge tower okay and then once they're done you know they get out of their room they run towards their parents and they say come 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 daddy come mommy come see what i built and they're all excited And then you go into the room, what will 98% of the parents say when they see the tower? Two words. Good job. Good job. Wow. That's awesome. You're so great. That's unbelievable. Yada, 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 yada. Well, actually, what most people don't know is that's, that's actually bad to say as a first thing when you witness whatever they created. And the reason is it becomes a drug. Because then the kid afterwards might only build stuff to get the wows, to get the bravos, to get yeah. the oh, you're so great. So what I teach in this, in this chapter is I'm not saying you shouldn't say the wow, but maybe change the timing of the wow. So before you say the wow, how about you ask the child, hey, um, did you enjoy doing that? And you might think, yeah, but this kid is four years old. Athletes know more than we think. Children know more than we think. The kid's going to say something. Well, and it might be short. He might say, yeah, yeah, I had some fun. Oh, cool. How much time did that take you? And then you might think, he's four years old. He doesn't understand the notion of time. Yes, he does. He might say something like, I've been working on that since breakfast. So all of a sudden the kid understands like, wow, I've actually been working on this for for a long time. Then the next question could be, um, was that your original plan? Is that what you wanted to build, or was it was it something else? Yeah, the four year old child will be able to answer that. Well, actually, um, I was I was looking to build a house, but then I started putting some extra Legos, and then it looked kind of looked like a tower. And I was thinking, I can make a huge tower. So no, it was I, I I wanted to build something else. And then you might ask something like, so at some point, like, did you did it fall, or like was it shaky and and and. And then all that to say, all that to say that it's, it's creating awareness around the process of how the child actually got to that, especially when something is successful. Um, and then at some point at the end, you might say, hey, we're really proud of you. Great, great work. All of a sudden, the neurological connections you created in that child's brain from asking those four or five questions and for that child to understand what he or she did to get there, think about the investment. In terms of resiliency, perseverance, you know, like creativity, understanding to bounce back from failure, um, understanding that you can actually change plans as you're going along. There's different ways to get there. Um, so so I, that I, chapter is, is one, it's one, of, it's one, of, it's one of our favorites, and it's been one of the favorites for a lot of readers. So yeah. I wanted to share that one because there are too many coaches still that go too fast with the Bravo's. Wow, that was great, bravo, bravo, bravo. And on the flip side, some of them are too quickly to highlight mistakes as well. Definitely. And so to make, you know, in a little bit to, you know, to relate to your football coach, to, to ask these additional questions, to, to make the athlete reflect on what led to that uh, is so important.
0: I love it. I think just hearing you ask those questions too, it just stimulates so much wonder and, and thought of, I think, expands possibilities and capabilities of a kid versus hey, nice tower.
1: Totally. <laughs>
0: you totally. Know? Um, th- through your work, you, know, you spend a lot of time adjusting with uh, the pandemic and the Olympics. Is, is there a lesson that maybe you've learned from a, a client or coach or someone you've worked with that, that kind of sticks out?
1: From the pandemic?
0: Uh, just from a client during, through, through those times
1: yeah I? well <clears throat> i would say that the biggest challenge tyler during this pandemic has been um dealing with uncertainties just because mm. like just for for people who are listening in i i'm very fortunate uh, to work with some of the best canadian athletes olympians pro athletes uh, all of my clients are, are very elite so so most of them have like yearly uh you know competition plans that it's kind of the same thing and they're used to it and they know they travel this place at this time and at certain times they, need, they can rest and this is where they need to peak. And well, the, for, for the last two years, there was almost nothing of that. Like just to put people in perspective, if, we, if we're talking about the um, Tokyo Olympics that were supposed to happen in 2020. Yeah. Well, it was announced in April of 2020 that the Olympics were going to be postponed for a year. However, the, the Olympics were not officially confirmed until June of 2021, a month before the Olympics actually happened, so yeah. that means that means my clients. I was I was coaching uh, nine athletes in six different sports for those Olympics, from April 2020 to June 2021. So we're talking about 14 months. They were training so hard, mm. and you know we kept them focused and motivated. Without knowing if the Olympics were going to go on. Sure. Yeah. And so. The amount of times I told athletes, the best way to manage uncertainties is by focusing on the certainties and to try to imagine if we're in April of 2020, am I going to go compete in two months? Question mark. Uh, Am I going to go to the Olympics next year? Question mark. You know, are we going to have any competitions at all this year? Question mark. I kept telling him, even the best medical specialists in the world have no idea what's going to happen with this virus. And so sure. you, there is no value to waste your time and energy in trying to predict if you're going to have competitions or not. The uncertainties, forget them. However, the certainties, meaning what you have access to in the next week in terms of training facilities, yeah. what you're going to have access in terms of like treatment, you know, the people you can and can't see. Um, you know, well, that's pretty certain. And so let's just focus on that. So I would tell them like short-term focus, short-term focus, short-term focus. And then and then, you know, some would argue, yeah, but Jeff, my brain wants to go long term. And I said, Yeah, fair enough. Just catch it and bring it back. And then and then they'll say, well, Yeah, but it's gonna go back. I said, Yeah, catch it and just bring it back. And that's that's mental conditioning. And the more and more and more you do that, well, the more it becomes normal to just think about the next week or two. And I've got to give credit. Tyler to my clients and their coaching staffs they executed that to a tee it was unbelievable to watch um the last the last summer olympics were very very successful for 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 Canada in general but for the clients that I work with and I truly believe that is because they never let the foot off the gas did they struggle during that time of course they did You know, was it difficult that they have to give, you know, a kick in the rear end on a regular basis? Of course they did. It was a lot of work, but I am so proud of them. And I really do think it's because they kept their focus on short term. So on the certainties in uncertain moments.
0: I love it. I love hearing your enthusiasm about the people you coach. You can, you can see, you can feel feel it even through a zoom call. So Uh, I know your athletes can, can really enjoy it. I'm sure. Um, what, as you teach mental skills and there's a lot of them out there, is there one that you kind of love to teach right now or you teach because it's a little
1: more vital? Right. Um, Listen, I'm not going to answer your question in terms of like, which one is the most important or, Mm -hmm. uh, or the most enjoyable. I'm going to answer your question more in uh, what's kind of like the new age mental skill uh, that we need to pay attention to a little bit more. Yeah. And the reason I say this is, you know, for instance, mindfulness has been such a huge thing in the last several years. And I kind of chuckle when I hear this because it's like, it's like, it's a trend. Uh, whereas mindfulness has been around for thousands of years. Like it's just someone that invented that word about 20, 25 years ago and then everyone's doing it. And everyone says that they're mindfulness coaches, which you got to be careful (laughs) with that. One thing I've realized that we don't talk enough about, um, as mental performance coaches, but also as technical coaches, uh, regardless of the sport you coach, is what I call um, training your senses. And what I mean by that is every athlete uses a bunch of senses for whatever sport they play. And what I like to do, because the reality of of my clientele, Tyler, is that I work with, um, I currently work with uh, about 20 Olympians in, in about 14 different sports. Yeah. So, so, so the sport, the culture, the, the demands of the sport are completely different. Okay. So I always have to keep in mind that I am working with these different athletes and all of them have to use different senses in different ways. So what I do with athletes, so let's say we take, um, um, let's say we'll take a judo athlete just because I, I, I work with judo and, and I actually had this conversation with a judo athlete this week. So I'll ask the athlete, if you take the five senses that we have, and you put them in order of importance in your sport, what would they be? It's a super interesting question, because all of a sudden, they got to think about like, okay, well, obviously, vision is important, because I got I to be able to see my opponent and how they're maneuvering and stuff. But like, wow, I think actually feel is probably more important, because as a judo athlete, it's all about weight transfer. So know how you how you how you you grasp um how you how you you grab and how you you know you move around and but then hearing is also important as well for this and this and this reason so it it stimulates conversations unreal and i'll ask the athlete and i'll ask the coach and then we compare if they put them in the same order and then we'll divide a 100 percent of attention to all five Mm. so is the field 35%? Thirty-five percent? Is it twenty-five percent? Is it forty percent? Is it sixty percent? And then the same thing for the other four senses. Then from that, we'll train them. So when we do visualization, I build the visualization um, exercises based on the importance of the senses. And I actually don't call I don't call it visualization anymore. I call it sensualization mm. because if you think about what we do. Uh, with with visualization, classical uh, visualization is is simulating what we're going to do for real, and what we do for real um, is using all of our senses. And I would argue the biggest mistake that people make when they visualize is they use the vision too much. And but the word vision is in visualization, and so or or mental imagery, image by you know seeing, right? So uh, so keep this in mind: sensualization instead of visualization. So, so what we do is we, we talk a lot about this, um, in our sessions about like, how are you using your, your, your senses? So like one of my clients is the most dominant mogul skier in the world. His name is Mikhail Kingsbury. And we talk a lot about skiing with his eyes and when he's skiing well, he's skiing with his eyes, like he's picking up everything and his body's just following. So that's training the sense of vision very, very specifically, deliberately. Um, there, there was a track and field athlete I was working with, a sprinter, who was coming out of the blocks a little bit slow. And he was getting frustrated because he was, he, he, you know, he was one of the best in the world, but, but he was always one of the last out of the blocks. So I asked him at some point, I said, well, what are you paying attention when you're in the blocks? And he said, well, I'm waiting for the gunshot. I said, well, if you're waiting for the gunshot, that means you're trying to anticipate And when you're anticipating, your brain is not here now. Your brain is in the future. Is it coming? Is it coming? Is it coming? Is it coming? And then when the gunshot goes off, what happens from a a neurological perspective in your brain is, oh, there it is. Oh, you got to go. But that probably represents, you know, 10 hundreds of a second or maybe not that much, but close. So I said, what if you just listened? What if you didn't? There is no cognitive activity going on in terms of like talking to yourself. Is it coming? Is it coming? Or... What if you just listen because you've been doing track and field for so long, just by listening, when the gunshot's going to go off, your body's going to, it's going to react. You don't need to tell yourself to go. Well, he trained this for two months and this next competition did a PB uh, in his hundred meter dash.
0: Excellent.
1: Was it only because of that? Probably not, but, but, but he was quicker off the, off, off the blocks uh, out of the blocks. And so that's another example is, by talking specifically about training the sense that you really need in your sport, you can get a little edge.
0: Yeah, how did, one question, how does, uh, so I always think it's kind of connected to the sport and the environment a lot and our, sometimes our equipment. How did, when you do that exercise, how does smell and olfaction come into play?
1: Well, it, it just allows to create the real environment that you're right. going to be in, right? So right. when you're, if you're a swimmer, there's, there's a smell about being around a pool, you know? Yeah, um, if, you're, if you're a skier, there's a smell about being a, around crisp snow or, or cold air, right? A
0: hockey locker room.
1: Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a former hockey player, so I know exactly what yeah. that smells like. Yeah. Um, but all these things, you know, I, I know that I'm, I'm talking um, or people that are listening in or, or most of them are, might be American, so I can even talk about baseball, like the eyes in baseball are so important. Oh, and, boy. you know, if you think if, when you're in the hitter's box, um, it's all like, it's, it's almost all vision because the quicker you can pick up the ball that's coming, the more time you have to make, you know, quality swing. And, it, and if, and if there's some cognitive process going in your mind, like, you know, is it going to be a curveball? Is it going to be a fastball? Last time, last time I swung and I miss. Uh, and you're trying to see at the same time, you're dividing your attention. It, you're not a hundred percent devoted to really looking at, at what's coming up. Um, and a little quick story, I'm looking at the time and I know we got to wrap this up soon, but, um, I coach my little son in baseball and, um, Excellent. it's been what, five years now. And when he first started, he, he was playing T-ball and, and one of the realities of T-ball is, uh, obviously the ball is on a T, right? So the ball's not moving. So. A common thing that we will tell kids as baseball coaches when they're young is look at the ball, you know, when you swing, like look at the ball, you know, and you know, as myself, as a mental performance coach, and I have all, all these mental skills. And when I talk about concentration, there's, there's these specific ways to really channel your attention so much more. So it was my job to help the kids around the, um, the batter's box. Um, and you know, I would let them swing once. Just to see what would happen and most you know they're pretty good so they sometimes they would hit the ball sometimes they would swing and miss and then i would tell him i said i would tell them, okay i don't want you to look at the ball and then it'd be kind of like well what are you talking about and then i would i would tell them, i want you to look at a stitch on the ball and then and then they're like well which one because you know there's several stitches right i said well pick one pick the one you want and then they would, with their finger think about it the game's going on you see the kid like point- <laughs> <laughs> pointing yeah. the ball. Okay. That's this, Jeff. I'm going to look at that stitch. All right. All I want you to do is I just want you to look at that stitch while you're swinging. Well, Tyler, 95% of the time they would just crank it. That's awesome. And it was so funny because some, they would start running at the first base and then they would look at me back at home plate and like, wow, that was magic. You know, how'd you do that? And then I, you know, I would explain to them why that happened, but yeah. So training senses, I would say is kind of like my, my, uh, kind of like my my fetish mental skill right now that i love Love that i love talking about and i think is is really important regardless which sport we play i love
0: it um last question as we kind of round wind up here uh your other book train your brain like an olympian for those novice student athletes out there that were you know maybe it's first time like i got to start doing some mental game what's what's a good place to start to begin that training
1: well, listen. I often get this this question, uh, like, uh, when do we start mental training? You know, how how young? And I've been I've been coaching my kids since they're born. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and they don't know that I'm doing mental performance coaching with them. But you know, ever since they've been young, I've been teaching them how to breathe properly uh, before going to bed, uh, or I'll ask them to think about you know their upcoming day, you know to visualize themselves being in class and enjoying the moment and um, keeping it really simple. Uh, or I'll ask him about like, you know, if they, they could tell me three great things about their day. So just highlighting little wins. Right. So, so there's, I don't think there's, there's a specific age to start. You just got to adapt the terminology and you know, the way you bring it up with, with um, how old the child is, or, you know, the, the teenager or whatever age. Um, So my book, Train Your Brain Like an Olympian, uh, I wrote it in in a very strategic way. Um, The book is all about the mental skills that I teach elite athletes and how we can use this in the workplace. Now, when I say workplace, it's very broad. Okay, Workplace meaning like if you're a teacher or if you're a banker or if you're a surgeon uh, or if you're a a football coach or, or a hockey coach. Because uh, it's all a workplace, and, you know. Maybe we don't get paid because a lot of it, a lot of it is volunteer work. But sure. But but we're we're in a position where there is a lot of psychology that's happening, and so um, again, my main um, argument against a lot of these sports psychology books out there is that sometimes they're th- they're too abstract. It's it's mm-hmm. too like it's difficult to to understand, or it's not like. It's not practical enough, right? So that was my main focus when I, when I wrote it. And one of the things in sport that's very unique that we don't do enough elsewhere is, um, is we use illustrations or diagrams or we, we, we draw out plays for athletes to understand, you know, to, uh, so this is what I did. I have over 70 drawings in my book. Every time I, I talk about something, Love I drew it in the book and this is actually my handwriting. Like, like if you're in my office with me and I do it on my whiteboard, um, gotcha. cool. And, and, and given that it's geared towards the workplace, I also wrote it in a way that, um, well, first of all, I, I wrote in a way that it's, it's like, I'm speaking to you. So it's, mm-hmm. um, it's like, I'm actually coaching you. And, and even though an athlete, you know, a 12 year old athlete, or a 14 year old athlete is not in the workplace, uh, they'll get it. Like, it's not, it's not complicated where you have to be like a worker somewhere an employee to, sure. to understand the concepts because uh, i give a bunch of examples all my examples actually or most of them um come from sport you know i talk about what i did with this track and field athlete or this skier or this hockey player so um or baseball player or golfer uh, so it's totally relatable and um we're, we're really really happy it became a bestseller um from the from the first year and and i was you know surprised and not because there's such a big need you know it's uh it's it is so important to train your brain as much as you train anything else um and i'll just finish by saying like i always said that a, a complete athlete or a very solid athlete is like a solid table with four legs that are the same length and for me the four legs that represent a solid athlete is the physical aspect of your sport technical tactical and psychological And the physical, tactical, and technical, we train it a lot. That's kind of like a gimme. So those three legs are the same length and they're sturdy. They're strong. But that fourth leg usually is a little bit shorter. Um, And if like in training where there's not much pressure or stress and you rely more on the side of the table, if you sit on the table where it's more the physical, technical, tactical, yeah, it'll be sturdy. But the difference is in competition, it's a lot more psychological than physical and technical, tactical. Right? Yep. So if that leg is not trained, that it's not as long as the other ones, it's gonna be wobbly. Um, and that's where, you know, Tyler, the amount of phone calls and emails I get from coaches and parents that tell me, my athlete is great in practice, but is not able to transfer that into competition. Well, I just explained why. Yeah. Thank you for listening.
0: If something caught your ear as useful or unique this episode, we would love your help spreading the Elevate message. You can find me on Instagram at Elevate, educate, Rejuvenate. That's with the numeral instead of the A-T-E. Thank you again, and if I can help
1: you with anything, please reach out. And don't forget, go Elevate others.